Welcome to the Equipping You in Grace podcast. We are so excited that you are joining us for the show today. This podcast aims to explore a biblical life view in a conversational tone. Let's join our host and founder of Servants of Grace, Dave Jenkins, for today's episode. Thanks so much for listening. Welcome back to the Equipping You in Grace podcast. My name is Dave, and I'm the host for this podcast. And with me today is my buddy, David Steele. David, welcome back to the show. Thank you. Appreciate it. Appreciate the time to spend with you today. Yeah, me too, man. I always enjoy uh, having chats with you about the Seahawks and, and golf. And, and obviously, you know, we both love theology. So here we go. go uh, yeah, go Hawks. That's right. That's right. We, we actually do talk about football sometimes, but not very often. We do. We do. Yeah. Well, can you uh, just tell us, catch us up on what's going on in your life, marriage, ministry? Uh, what, what's going on writing-wise, ministry-wise for you? And uh, what, what should we know about you, brother? Sure, you bet, Dave. Uh, well, my, my wife and I will be celebrating, I can't believe it, 28 years of marriage in a few weeks. And our, uh, our oldest daughter uh, recently graduated from Corbin University in Salem, Oregon. Our son's a senior in high school, and he's playing football for the first time this year in about seven years. So he's really fired up about that. Um, we are entering our eighth year here at Christ Fellowship in Everson, Washington, just south of the Canadian border, where I serve as a senior pastor here. Uh, we're busy with a ministry, of course. In this fall season, my, my wife is teaching a class for women that addresses fear and anxiety and other related issues. I'm teaching a class for men entitled Be Killing Sin, the Art of War on the Battlefield of Faith. And of course, our, our schedules, uh, my wife and our son and myself, our schedules are, are packed, as you might expect. And I'm also working on a handful of new book projects nearly complete with a, a book project that I'm calling Spineless, Restoring Courage and Conviction to the People of God. And then I've got a couple other projects that I'll, I'll keep nameless for now, but hopefully we'll see the light of day in the next year or two. Well, that's wonderful, brother. I, I so appreciate uh, not only the work that you do in, in the local church, but also in your writing, and very much appreciate the, the encouraging friend that you are. So thank you for yeah, that. You as well. You as well. Thanks, brother. Well, can you uh, tell us a, a bit about this book, White Flag, When Compromise Crip the church, why you wrote it, and how you hope it'll be received. Well, this book has really been a long time coming for me. Uh, for many years, I had watched the compromise take place in the local church at, at literally every level. I've seen pastors throw in the towel. I've seen professing Christians downplay doctrine or discard it altogether. I've had people tell me in pastoral ministry that you emphasize theology too much. Uh, believe it or not, I, I've seen churches that were once strong and robust move away entirely from the truth. I see churches compromise on gender issues day after day. They move in an egalitarian direction that is deeply, deeply troubling to me. And I see the accommodation of the so-called same-sex marriage even in some churches. And so what I began to see in my mind's eye is, is a church all around, not only in America, but all around the world who is hoisting up a white flag and, and surrendering all that was precious to her at one time. And so a few years ago, I, I began to write this book as a way to address the rampant compromise and capitulation that's occurring all around us. And so my hope is that the, the book educates, I hope that it informs, I hope that it inspires. Uh, some people i found are unaware of the deep compromise that is crippling the church. Uh, but more than all of that, my hope is that this book will move people to action. I hope that 
it will prompt healthy discussion, maybe even some debate among believers, and, and produce lifelong change in individuals and churches as a whole. And if that happened, it would be worth all, all the time of writing this book. Well, um, I I agree with you. And in fact, guys, I had the honor, uh, David allowed me to read a copy of this as he was working on it and said, hey, would you write something on it? And uh, of course, when you're when your buddy who you have the same theological convictions asked you, will you write a blurb? Uh, yeah, for sure. So yeah, here's here's uh, here's the long thing. I, I I ended up not being on the on the back cover or anything like that, but we won't hold that against you, Dave. Uh, and, and once I read this, you'll you guys will find out why, because uh, it was quite voluminous and, and verbose. So there you go. Um, so here's what I said. We are living in a day when not only is truth under attack, it is belittled and dismissed. Our popular culture continues to turn out a message through the mainstream media that, that we can be all that we can be if only we'll succumb to its message regarding gender roles, abortion, humanity, the climate, and more. Even as secular humanism continues to rise in our day, the Lord continues to raise up voices that challenge the status quo by calling Christians to remain faithful to biblical orthodoxy. And one of these voices is Dr. David Steele. In his latest book, The White Flag, When Compromise Cripples the Church, uh, Dr. Steele calls his readers to stand firm, not in their own might, nor in their own righteousness, but in the righteousness of Christ. And along the way, he not only identifies the problem, but points to the cure of Jesus Christ. Dr. Steele's wise and biblical counsel will help new and seasoned Christians to navigate the shifting sands of compromise by buttressing themselves in the ancient path of biblical orthodoxy. The white flag is a welcome addition to the calls to reformation, revival, and renewal in the church. It not only diagnoses the problem, it lays out a biblical theological vision grounded in the gospel that will help every Christian navigate the way forward in our hedonistic, humanistic, post-Christian culture to the glory of God. Thank you, brother, for for letting me write that. Uh, Thank you for writing it. I really appreciate it. Yeah, happy to do it anytime. Well, can you you tell us, what is a three-headed foe of every Christian, and how do we stand against this foe as Christians? Well, the, the three-headed foe of, of believers, of course, uh, according to the Word of God, is the world, the flesh, and the devil. Uh, the, the aim of the world is to quite simply squeeze us into its ungodly mold, and unfortunately, we see that happening all around us um, day by day. And compromise sets in when we set aside God's holy standards and embrace the philosophy, the ideology of the world. And when the, when the worldly system, uh, what the Scripture refers to as the cosmos, uh, dictates our dreams and guides our goals and informs our ideology, we will unwittingly fall prey to this worldly system. And then there's the flesh. The flesh wages an unholy war against our souls. We experience it every day. It seeks to lure us away from finding ultimate satisfaction in God and ultimately placing our trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. And then there's the devil, of course, and according to the Bible, he comes to steal, kill, and destroy. The devil is a a vicious murderer. He's he is not the, the portrait that we see in so many uh, books and movies of a, of a red little guy with a, a pointy tail and horns uh, stabbing people with a pitchfork. Rather, he is a vicious murderer. He's a, a powerful enemy who utterly hates and repudiates the truth of God's Word. And I believe, Dave, that somewhere along the way, Christians began to either downplay at best or discount the three-headed foe, the, the world, the flesh, and the devil. And so the white flag is hoisted high all around 
around us and the precepts and the principles of God's Word are soon forgotten. And I believe, my personal belief, is that the white flag should be utterly eliminated from our churches and utterly eliminated from our personal lives. That is, it's time to root out compromise and it's time to return to our first love. So how do we we stand against a three-headed foe? Um, That's a theme that I address in the book in some detail, but let me just say that Scripture gives us our marching orders on this issue. Uh, We are called, according to Scripture, to wage a holy war as followers of Jesus Christ. Peter himself says we're to abstain from the passions of the flesh, and then Scripture describes the war that we're engaged in, but it's not a conventional war. Uh, Paul addresses this. He says in 2 Corinthians 4, though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have the divine power to destroy strongholds. And then Paul, in the very next verse, uh, unveils the divine strategy for this war. He says, we destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised up against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. He continues in Ephesians chapter 6, be be strong in the Lord and the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. And so we're, we're really called to prepare our minds for action. That's what First Peter 1.13 says. We're called uh, to wage the good warfare, First Timothy 1.18. And so these are some of the themes that I, I develop uh, in the book in, in greater detail, especially in, in part three. That's just a, a summary of what, what takes place in the book, Dave. Yeah, that's that's really helpful. So, so Dave, how do we begin to identify as Christians the false prophets of our age? You know, you, you gave me that question in advance, and, and I really appreciated it, and I got to thinking about some of the things and and also kind of uh, looking back in in some of the chapters of the book. And thankfully, uh, God's Word helps us to identify uh, these false prophets. And I focus on um, several of these in the book, but there's a few that stand out in particular to save our our time this afternoon. Uh, First, uh, false prophets deny the truth about Jesus. Peter the Apostle says false prophets arose among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you who will secretly bring in destructive heresy, even denying the master who bought them, bringing upon themselves swift destruction. And so the first mark of a false prophet, among many marks, is that they deny the truth about who Jesus is and what Jesus accomplished. But there's another uh, way that we can identify these false prophets, and that is that they they desecrate the truth of God's Word. Again, the Apostle Peter says in 2 Peter 2.2 that because because of them, the way of truth will be blasphemed. Over in Jude uh, 4, we learn that the, the false teachers will pervert the grace of God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord Jesus Christ. And then another uh, mark of one of these false prophets is something we see literally every day. They deceive people. Uh, Peter says they will exploit you with false words. That is, they, they deceive people for personal gain. They use deceitful terminology. They use deceitful ideology to lure global people into their tangled web of lies. And tragically, the, I believe their ploy is, is working as many people we have seen in recent days have been led astray by what I like to refer to as the, the prophets of post-modernity. It's sobering. Yeah, it's 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 out there. It's it's happening. You know, whether we, you know, all, all around us are, are messages, as we both know, and and those messages right. are are enticing us to, to believe these these things. That's why the Bible says in Proverbs four twenty three to guard our hearts with all due diligence, for out of it springs the issues of life. You know, when That's Jesus right. uh, talks about in Luke six forty five, out of the abundance of the the mouth, the, the heart speaks. So what we you have to uh, if you 
hearing comes by faith, and faith by the word, as Romans ten seventeen says. Well, we we gotta be careful about what we're letting into our into our ears and and then into our hearts. So that's exactly right. That's right. What what exactly is discernment, and why is it so important for Christians? Well, I love the question. Um, discernment, of course, is a, a major theme that I address in this book, The White Flag, and it's it's one that is is growing increasingly rare uh, in the church. So discernment involves recognizing truth and rejecting error. We recognize the truth, but we reject the error. And so really to be a discerning Christian means that we are required to make judgments. And as I thought about this question, you can see why discernment is such an unpopular subject, even in the church, because we're told uh, we're told to tolerate anyone. We're, to- we're told to tolerate anything. But the Bible instructs us in a totally different way. Uh, I thought of 1 John chapter 4 that says, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirit to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. So we're called to test the spirits, and we're called to test everything, as you just mentioned, Dave, everything we see and hear. And so there, there are tests for exercising biblical discernment that I discuss further in the book. But the basic gist is that um, we exercise biblical discernment in the following way. Do these teachers, do these prophets, do these preachers promote a blemished Christ? That is, do they promote a view of Christ that is in alignment with the Word of God? If they do, they are to be rejected. And then second, do they promote a blemished worldview? Uh, What do they teach about God? What are their theological commitments? Is their ultimate allegiance bound to the Word of God, or are they tethered to the frail castle of human autonomy? So you can see that failing to exercise biblical discernment always leads to disaster. It always leads to, to peril. It always leads to personal disaster, which ultimately leads to ecclesiastical disaster. So when we fail to discern, we we contribute, I believe, to the rise of the white flag. And, and once again, I, I see it happening every day. It's really the reason I wrote the book. I, I agree. That's why I endorsed the book. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, thank you for writing it. Very important. What are, what are some marks of a compromised church? Marks of a compromised church. Well, th- this is a, a major section in the book, and so I, I, I don't provide a comprehensive list in the book. There's so many areas I could have explored, but I do focus on on five specific themes of compromise, and I'll share a few of those here. One of the marks of compromise is what I refer to as a dismantled God. And so most people uh, who are walking with Jesus, I would say, are familiar with A.W. Tozer's words at the beginning of his book, The Knowledge of the Holy. He says, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. I think about that quote, that might be the most repeated quote in in our church, in the pulpit that I preach from. I, I, I quote Tozer all the time because of the importance of that quote. But he continues the discussion that is less known by describing a church whose view of God is what he refers to as so decadent as to be utterly beneath the dignity of the Most High God. And what's striking about those words is that he penned those words in 1961. And as I thought about this, that things have not improved. We have regressed and the white flag continues to fly ever so high. Another mark that I explore in the book, a mark of compromise, involves doctrine. So whenever we come to the world by disregarding doctrine, and believe it or not, that happens in local churches. When we do that, the enemy gains a foothold, and the church is weakened as a result, and the white flag continues to fly. It's a tragic, uh, tragic set of circumstances. Yes, 
Very, very tragic. Well, what are some marks of a healthy local church? Well, of course, Mark Dever includes a great list in his book. It's a terrific book, Nine Marks of a Healthy Church. Uh, some additional marks would include a, a church, as we talked about a moment ago, who discerns, a church with a, a robust view of God, a church that places a premium on sound doctrine, and a church that places a priority on the Christian mind. Uh, such a church, I believe, will be a, a gospel-centered church, that they will focus not only on the truth, not only on believing the truth, but on living the truth as well in the marketplace of ideas. Mm, that's, uh, that's really well said. Well, what happens when Christians disregard doctrine, and how do we combat this? Well, this is a big question. Um, what I have discovered is that it's happening all over the place. It's happening in the church. It's happening in our personal lives. And what I've discovered is that our Christian lives do not occur in a vacuum. So whenever we disregard doctrine, we end up submitting to the spirit of the age. Uh, we end up compromising. Um, you, you show me a church who disregards doctrine, and I will show you a church who is utterly unfaithful and utterly unfruitful. They may have a membership of 10,000 people, but they will be one inch deep and will likely be filled with false converts. And that, that is a very unpopular thing to say. But I, again, show me a church who downplays or disregards doctrine, and I'll show you a church who is utterly unfaithful to, to God and the Word of God. H how do we combat it? Uh, Paul told Timothy in 1 Timothy 4, until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation, to teaching, and practice these things, immerse yourselves in them so that all may see your progress. And then he, he says this, keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. Persist in this, for by so doing, you will save both yourself and your hearers. I interviewed at a church several years ago and preached a message on this passage and paid close attention to the section where Paul says, keep a close watch on yourself and the teaching. And it actually turned out to be controversial, if you can imagine that. And so, uh, my wife and I really loved the people we had a chance to interact with, but when they asked me to candidate, I, I politely bowed out of that situation. That's uh, that's really sad. Um, yeah. And you know, as we're going to talk about here, here uh, we're going to get into more detail of this. But um, you know, I, I I absolutely agree with you. You know, we what you talk about doctrine, what people think is, well, are you going to tell me five things that I'm supposed to do for my life? That's right. Um, tell me, tell me what I'm supposed to do with it. It's like, but you don't understand understand is I am telling you like yeah. this is what you're this is not only how you're supposed to believe but but then it affects how you live and yeah. you know we you know even in some of our circles you know this as well as I do you know the the, app, the word application is is treated like a dirty word almost almost right. like a almost like a, a swear word and you know but when we look at the Bible um you know and you said by the way uh, a lot of the things you said are unpopular we, we pretty much say a lot of unpopular things on this show so yep. uh, you know but they're but they're true things and and probably one of the biggest things that I'll just say I'm just gonna throw it out there you know but application is not a bad thing it's it's a right. good thing it's it's because we have, uh, you know, the right view of the Bible and, and doctrine, as Dave's talking about, we will apply the truth that the Holy Spirit will, as James 1, 22 through 25 talks about, we, we look in the mirror and what do we see? We see ourselves. But when we look into the, we look into the word, we, we see something even greater. We see our, we see our God and we see ourselves in light of that, of that word. And, and that should convict us. Um, That's right. Yeah. If, if we don't, if we, if it's not convicting us, then guess what? Our 
doctrine is wrong. Yep. So so it's not just, oh, preach to these people and tell these people, write to these people and say everything that they want to hear. That's that's not our message. That <laughs> Paul says that the message of the cross is foolishness and uh, people are perishing, and uh, but the righteousness of God is, is wisdom. And, and um, so, yeah, that's that's why I'm all about this book, because, uh, you know, you're, you're saying the things that need to be said and, and we need to yep. say the things that need to be said. So, yeah, I appreciate that. Yeah, Great deal. For sure. How, how is the person at work under assault in our day? Well, you know, Dave, that the, the person and work of Jesus Christ has, has really been attacked throughout church history. And so you're, you're really right on target to say that the battle continues in our day. This is not just a battle for the 4th century or the 16th century. This is a battle that's taking place right now. I see the work of Christ especially under attack both in the academy as well as in the church, where it, it has been invoked to repudiate the penal substitutionary work of Christ. And this kind of nonsense is, is not merely academic swordplay. It's not uh, quibbling among theologians. What is I believe what is at stake in this debate about the penal substitutionary work of Jesus on the cross is the very gospel of Jesus Christ. We give up penal substitutionary atonement. We give up the gospel. And so, how is the person and work of Christ under assault? And under assault in our day, the first thing that pops in my mind is a, a repudiation by some of the penal substitutionary atonement of Jesus on the cross for our sins. Yeah, that's that's really good. Yeah, we, we both know uh, when when pastors say um, this is cosmic child abuse and, and worse. Right. It's um, we got a we got a problem. <laughs> I mean, problem. how do you yep. how do you read the Bible and and come to the conclusion that the Day of Atonement is an act of cosmic child abuse? That's right. Um, I'll never forget. I I heard. The, well, well, the the British gentleman, the pastor from the UK, who who uttered those words Steve many Chalk. years ago, and I, I I couldn't believe it. I, I couldn't believe my ears. And then it, it began to get popular through the through the years, and so now a lot of people actually believe that. Yeah, it's it's so sad. It's so sad. I actually wrote an article around the time. I don't know. This would have been this would have been probably uh, I can't remember 2011 or 12 or something like that. And I I got I got quite a bit of email on that because people were like, thank you. Thank you for saying that. And I was yeah. like, well, well, thank you for not, uh, you know, coming at me. Um, wow. But, but uh, yeah, how do we, how do we combat this assault? Well, I, I think the antidote to be uh, very plain and simple is to immerse ourselves in the Word of God. We, we need to learn the Word of God. We need to study the Word of God. Uh, we need to wrestle with the historical formulation of this doctrine. Uh, one of the things that I have stressed in my ministry over the past 28 years is a, a, a robust systematic theology. So I can remember at a church I served at, I had a couple gentlemen come to me and they said, Pastor, we want to learn theology. And so we uh, picked up copies of Wayne Grudem's Systematic Theology and just began to read chapter after chapter after chapter. After we went through that book, actually several times, I had some women in the church approach me and say, how come the women can't learn systematic theology? And so I was asked by the, the senior pastor's wife if I would uh, be so kind to sit down with a group of uh, hand-selected women at the church at our dining room table with my wife by my side and teach through that that book. And I tell you, the, the women did a marvelous job, and, and their minds were sharp, their 
hearts were soft for the truth of God's Word, and they were equipped and edified and encouraged. And so I, I encourage people when we talk about the antidote and going deeper into the Word of God to, to pick up a copy of Grudem's Systematic Theology, to pick up John Frame's Systematic Theology or John MacArthur's Systematic Theology. And what I've discovered is the lights begin to go on as believers go deep into the Word of God. As they engage with the truth, they embrace the truth. What happens is they are equipped to recognize error when they see it. And I think that's probably the best thing we can do to um, to deal with, with error in the church, to be grounded in the Word of God. Amen. I'll preach all all day long on this podcast. Yeah. I don't know about others, but but on this one, I definitely will. So, Why does a right view of uh, the judgment of Christ matter for the Christian? Well, this is one of the chapters in the book. I, I discuss this, and I, I talk to people on a fairly regular basis who either struggle with the judgment of Christ, that is, the doctrine of hell, or they repudiate it altogether. Uh, but here, here's the bottom line. And, and, and this sounds very um, counterintuitive to some people, but it's what the Scripture teaches. When we discard the judgment of Christ, we destroy the very essence of the gospel. Mm. The judgment of Christ is not an open-handed matter. The, the gospel is at the very heart of this discussion. And so we, we both know that some of the books of recent days that have become popular, Love Wins and, and, and books like that, have dealt with this issue. But the gospel is compromised. And every book I've read that uh, deals with or or repudiates the judgment of the Lord Jesus Christ or the doctrine of hell. It's um, it's so sad. You know, yeah, I, I live sad. I live here in California, and it's like. A lot of the people around here, they they know they're lost, but it's like you you tell them the gospel, and you know you you're very patient with them, and you you know explain things, and it's like they just they just want to do whatever they want to do, you know. At yeah, the end of the day, they true. don't they don't think that that what they're going to do is uh, or, or what what they're doing presently uh, at the end of the day it, it matters for 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 even now, yet alone in the future. So right, yeah, you know. Exactly. Yeah, we have to keep pounding that message. Absolutely, you as well. Yes, sir. What do we uh, What do we do about the deteriorating of a Christian mind as Christians? Well, this is a subject that I've been interested in for a long time. Um, I, I heard R.C. Sproul say on several occasions before he went to be with the Lord that we live in what may be the most anti-intellectual period in the history of Western civilization, and I, I agree with Dr. Sproul. I believe he was right on target, and so I believe the antidote uh, to the deteriorating Christian mind is to be a person who is first and foremost committed to the truth. And once you're committed to the truth, you become transformed by the truth. Mm. Uh, we are called as, as Christ followers to increase in the knowledge of God. So says Paul in Colossians chapter 1. And then the net result is a people of great spiritual strength and vigor and vitality. Once again, we, we ground ourselves in the, in the truth of God's Word. Yeah, that's that's really well said. I, I don't think I've heard R.C. say that, so you'll have to... Is that right? Yeah, I don't think I have, but but it makes sense because, yeah. um, you know, one of the growing up in Seattle, which, you know, we both did, uh, you know, I I heard it all often. Well, you, you're a Christian, so so you can't have a brain, basically. Um, right, right. Not, not in those many words, but it, it's essentially the same. I, I stood in a, I was in a moral philosophy class at Bellevue Community College, and they, they told me, which is which is just outside of Seattle, and, uh, you know, for those of you that don't know that, um, and, and the professor said, you know, if you, if you make even a 
comment about something related to abortion or against abortion, you know, you're going to go to the dean. And and I said something like under my breath. And it's like, so what? Um, there was a guy in the class that had come from Germany. He was an exchange student. He had, he had told me he, he, he got an A in uh, philosophy at first master's degree. Um, and, and he wasn't getting an A in this particular class, like, because um, this, this professor, this professor didn't believe in giving out any A's. And, wow. uh, you know, I, I was just like, wow, he, this guy got ended up with a B plus and he, you know, in Germany, the classes are way harder than, than here. So sure. um, way, way, way harder. And, and so, yeah, that, that just shows like, it's just completely illogical. The, the, the way that people say that Christians are anti-intellectual. It's like, you know, what I could say is, and I do is, you know, throughout the history of the Christian church, who is, who has uh, been the one who made the hospitals and the, and the schools and the universities and, you know, helped, uh, help the poor and the orphans and, you know, on and on. And, and you want to say that we're the ones that are anti-intellectual. It's right. like, actually, actually, let's talk about this because you're the ones that you're the ones that want to do all that you want to do to destroy actual, you know, intellectual integrity and having a, having a, using the mind. And with what's, what's sad is we both know that the Greek and the Roman, uh, Greco-Roman philosophy, which is most of most of what our society is based on, you know, it, it values the idea of using your mind. And, and yeah, exactly. what, our, what our society has done is completely destroy that. I, I have to tell you a funny story, Dave. So it was probably almost 25 years ago, my, my uncle, who is still pastoring in, in Portland, Oregon, he approached me and he said, I, I want to give you a book to read. That's a book that was published in the 60s by Harry Blameyers called The Christian Mind. And I'll never forget what he said to me. He said, if you're a real man, you'll read this book. If you're a real man, you'll read this book. Well, I think I've read it three times since he first gave it to me. I guess that makes me a, a super real man. Mm-hmm. But what I've done since that day is I, I find copies of that book and use bookstores and pick up copies wherever I can find them. And I give them out at church. And guess what I say to the people I give them to? If you're a real man, you'll read this book. And I, I think I, I think as, as pastors and as followers of Christ, that's the kind of challenge we need to give people not think about reading it but if you're a, if you're a, if you're a real man you need to read this you need to meditate on this you need to seriously contemplate these very important realities mm, that's really well said what are the four critical components that should serve as the basis for the christian strategy against the white flag of compromise well i talk about this a bit in the book and i'll kind of sketch it out in brief uh, first I, I would encourage listeners to to stand firm so over and over again in the word of god we're we're given these instructions stand firm, stand firm in the grace of Christ. And so we are called to stand firm in our doctrinal convictions. We're called to stand firm in our moral convictions. But secondly, I would encourage listeners to reclaim their identity. Uh, Scripture tells us that we were buried with Christ in baptism, that we were raised with Christ so that we too might live new lives to the glory of God. So we reclaim who we are in Christ. And then third, um, I would encourage your listeners to persevere. Uh, We must stand fast in an age that is growing increasingly more and more ungodly. And every time you you see in your mind's eye the white flag hoisted high above a, a church or a school or, a, or wherever you happen to see it, uh, my encouragement would be to persevere and to resist that compromise, resist that capitulation. And then finally, as I share in the book, we must be
the uh, people who are established in the faith. And we've talked a lot about that this afternoon, uh, which involves time. It involves commitment. But I believe it pays off uh, in the final analysis as we wave farewell uh, to this horrible white flag. Yes. Let's burn that white flag. Let's burn it. Yeah. What does it mean to contend for the faith and why does it matter for the Christian? Well, I automatically think of uh, the book of Jude, who urged his readers to contend for the faith, once delivered for the saints. He was referring to an activity that involved great passion and zeal. So contending for the faith involves being aware of your surroundings. It involves being aware of false teachers. Paul was certainly aware of the false teachers that were in his sphere of influence. He said in Acts 20, I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock, and from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. And I've seen that in pastoral ministry. I've seen it in the church. I've seen people uh, become Sunday school teachers. I've seen people in uh, serving as deacons and even as elders who turned out to be false professors. And so we need to be very aware of the false teachers, even within the local church. Uh, second, uh, contending for the faith, I would argue, uh, means that we are be we, we beware of these false teachers. We're not only aware of them, but we beware of them. The Lord Jesus said, beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but are inwardly ravenous wolves. Uh, third, we, we must share with false teachers. We share with opponents of the faith. And Paul describes this activity in Second Timothy that he says we are not to be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone. That's been on my mind lately as we think about some of the controversies that surround us is is we must hold high standards, we must be godly um, in our behavior with others, we must love others as we stand for the sake of the truth, for the glory of God. And then engaging in this kind of activity, I call it apologetic activity, implies that we stay active in the world. That means we refuse to withdraw from culture, which so many Christians do. We refuse to become spiritual hermits, but instead we willingly engage with lost people. Uh, we do, as the scripture says, uh, especially in the book of Jude, to contend for the faith once for all delivered to the saints. Well said, brother. How, how do Christians tend to biblical truth? Well, when you ask the question about tending to biblical truth, the first thing that pops into my mind is something I know very little about, but that, that is a garden. But I, knew, I, knew, I know this about a garden, is you need to tend it. You need to take care of it. You need to water it. You need to uh, work hard uh, to maintain that garden. And so I think the same holds true in the Christian life when we refer to tending the biblical truth. That means we spend time in the Word of God, and the Word of God must dominate our minds, and it must soften our hearts on a daily basis. Amen. Well, Dave, there's a lot that we could talk about. In fact, we could take one of these questions, and you and I could talk about it for an hour or more. I'm, I'm, I know that. So as, as we wrap up this conversation, do you want to give us a few takeaways? Sure, you bet. I, I would simply encourage your listeners to, to read this book, to, to interact with it, and to begin to recognize the white flag when it emerges and call it for what it is. I would also encourage your listeners to, to enter the marketplace of ideas and to do so with grace and truth. Not just truth. There are some Christians who are very good at entering the marketplace of ideas and letting everyone know that they're a, a man or a woman of the truth. But I would encourage them to, to walk into the marketplace of ideas with both grace and truth. 
to reach out to people, to love people where they are at. And we're also called, I believe, to model the gospel when we respond in a godly fashion when persecution strikes. And we do it all for the glory of God. Well said, brother. Well said. Well, where can people uh, go to find out more about your work online, either on social media or otherwise? Well, the, the first place they can turn to is is your own Servants of Grace, where you've been so kind to post my reviews and, and some of my writing. And I haven't been there for a few weeks, Dave, but I, I pulled it up this morning. I think you've posted like 120-some pieces that I've written. I, I didn't know I'd written that much. So uh, I'd encourage your listeners to use Servants of Grace and to uh, use that as a great resource. Uh, you can also find me on my blog at davidsteel.blog or uh, my books are available on, on Amazon.com. Well, thank you for visiting uh, Servants of Grace, brother. And, and more importantly, thank you for contributing to Servants of Grace. And I just so appreciate your, your friendship. It means a lot to me. And I, I so enjoy when I'm in Seattle once once or twice a year. I, I love getting together and having some food and coffee and, and just um, enjoy our friendship a great deal. So thank you. Uh, me as well. Really appreciate you, Dave, and your ministry and all that you're doing for the kingdom. Thanks, brother. Thank you so much for listening. We hope that you were encouraged by today's episode. Don't forget to subscribe and leave us a review wherever you get your podcast. For more uplifting and thought-provoking content, please visit us online at servantsofgrace.org. You can also follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Servants of Grace and on Facebook at facebook.com slash servantsofgrace. We hope you have a blessed day and we will see you next time.